0: Uh, Let's ask God to help us as we come to his word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, help us as we come to learn from your word tonight. Uh, There are many things in our world that are a cause for distraction, some big, some small, some good, some bad. Uh, Lord, help us to push through all our distractions and focus on what you are saying to us uh, in this Bible passage now. Help me to explain it clearly and apply it in a helpful way. Uh, And I pray that you would strengthen our faith in Jesus through this word. Amen. Uh, I think true forgiveness is something that many people long for, but often struggle to find. Uh, You see, uh, sometimes you see this when a public figure or celebrity says or does something incredibly stupid, and then in the aftermath of it all, pleads for forgiveness via kind of social media or in a press conference but in those kind of moments forgiveness doesn't come easy and sometimes not at all. Uh, Michael Richards who played the beloved character of Kramer on Seinfeld, someone I watched growing up, he experienced this uh, when after an on-stage meltdown in a comedy club he failed miserably. Richards was filmed yelling out racial slurs uh, at those who were heckling him from the crowd no matter how much he apologised, uh, he never really found forgiveness. Uh, he never got what he was longing for. He became the butt of other comedians' jokes, and um, he was a showbiz outcast. Years later, he still speaks of the burden of his sin that night. But It's not just public figures who struggle to find true forgiveness. It's all of us in many ways. Many of us have had moments where we desperately long uh, for someone to forgive us, but we've been met with a kind of less than enthusiastic response. None of us like having that kind of feeling of unresolved sin in our life. None of us like the feeling of being an outcast because of sin. Uh, In Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, we see someone who is both able and willing to bring the kind of true forgiveness that the world struggles to provide. Jesus, we see, is able to remove the stain of sin and is willing to associate with the sinner. As we'll see, all wrongdoing is actually an act against God for which we will have to answer. And that's why it's actually crucial that we take note of the bigger and better forgiveness from God that Jesus promises in this Bible passage tonight. So I've broken our uh, passage into two parts. Uh, the first uh, is, looks at Jesus' ability to forgive sin with the paralyzed man. And the second is looking at Jesus' willingness to welcome sinners. So let's think about that first one, that Jesus is able to forgive sin. Uh, let's think about what happens in that first story with the paralyzed man. Uh, it's a beautiful thing when good friends act like great friends. I still remember the care of one of my friends when I was in extreme pain with pneumonia back in my uni days. She came over to our house, she helped me stumble into her car and then she drove me to the hospital and there she just sat with me until she knew I was all right. It was this wonderful moment of great friendship, great care. Well, our passage starts on that note tonight with a picture of four good friends acting like four great friends. Four men desperate to see their paralyzed buddy healed do whatever it takes to get him to the feet of Jesus, the one that is now famous for his authoritative teaching and his miraculous healing. And they really are prepared to do whatever it takes, aren't they? You see that in the story. When they come to the house where Jesus was teaching, they realize there's no way in. Verse 2 tells us that people had gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and Jesus preached the word to them. Now, I suspect that if we were faced with that same dilemma as the four guys, uh, most of us would simply start thinking up a kind of sensible plan B. What do these guys do? What do we see in verse 4? Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd... They did what? Took their place at the back of the queue and waited. Doesn't say that. Uh, Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they resolved to come again the following day, early. No. These guys don't go with a sensible plan B. They go with crazy because they have a crazy amount of love for their friend and a crazy amount of trust in Jesus to heal him that day, right there. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. You see, so convinced that Jesus could help them, these guys haul their paralyzed friend onto a roof, which is no small task, and then without hesitation just start destroying some random guy's house in order to get their friend to the feet of Jesus. Now, just imagine the scene from inside the house at that point. As people are kind of brushing off the dust and the dirt which has fallen from the roof, they now watch with eager expectation to see if Jesus will do for these four guys what they come for. Everyone, I think, in that room is ready to hear Jesus say the words, Son, Your paralysis is healed. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? And you see that looking at verse 5 in your Bibles. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, My kids often get us as a family to play the game, Would You Rather?, Uh, If you've been part of any kids' ministry, you've played this one before. You're given sort of two random options, uh, either both positive or both negative, and you have to choose one of them. So the one the kids asked me uh, a couple of days ago was Would you rather bull ants crawling up your back or slugs sliding up your back? It's kind of random, but they also give positive ones too. Would you rather cuddle a koala or cuddle a panda? Would you rather have a personal maid or a personal chef? What do you think the paralysed man might say if Jesus had first asked him? Would you rather your paralysis healed or your sins forgiven? What would you have said if you were that guy on the floor in front of Jesus? What do you think most people in our society might say? See, I actually think many people, perhaps many people here, might actually say, I'd kind of rather have my paralysis healed, please, Jesus. And I mean, on the face of it, that kind of appears to be the bigger problem, doesn't it? I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine a more desperate situation than being unable to move any of your limbs, particularly in the first century. And healing is certainly what the friends on the roof are hoping to see right now. So what's going on here? Why does Jesus opt for forgiveness of sins over healing of paralysis as his first port of call? Aren't we, aren't we to assume that this guy is some kind of extra heinous sinner? Well, the text doesn't suggest that, so we shouldn't draw that conclusion either. Now, I think Jesus says what he says in this moment to show his audience and us that there is actually something more serious, more in need of fixing than even the worst conditions of the human body. And that is the problem of sin in the human heart. See, remember, what was Jesus doing in this house before this guy arrives through the roof? He was teaching, preaching the word. And see, I think the teaching session continues on in this moment. And the lesson Jesus gives is on the big problem of sin and his power to deal with it. Uh, Many people, I think, in Australian society uh, have a pretty not serious view of sin. Uh, Christian author Rico Tice, who produces the Christianity Explored material that we use here at Bundy, uh, he quotes from an article that he read on a major newspaper in the UK uh, that covered the topic of the seven deadly sins, in which the writer in that article said this, In this day and age, sin has lost its sting. A bit of sinning is much more likely to be seen as a spot of grown-up naughtiness, the kind of thing that sends a delicious shock through the system. I think that kind of sums it up pretty well. Even if people believe there are some behaviours that are seriously wrong, that kind of term of sin for many has lost its sting. In fact, every time I go to visit... Uh, my mum, I pass by uh, a hamburger joint in Buleen called Burgatory. And they really play off this not serious view of sin. Their food is described as sinfully delicious. They have burgers named after the seven deadly sins. You can order an envy or a pride or a sloth. See, we live in a world that I think doesn't take The idea of sin incredibly seriously. So, why does Jesus view sin as our biggest problem and not simply just looking at it as a spot of grown-up naughtiness? Well, because Jesus knows, and Jesus taught, that sin is not just doing naughty things like lying or lust or laziness. To quote again from Rico Tice, according to the Bible. Sin is ignoring our creator in the world he has made. As we know, ignoring human beings is damaging enough, both to ourselves and others. Living without reference to the one who made us and gives us each breath is even more damaging. Because when I insist on my independence from the one who made me and sustains my life, it will lead to death. Not just here, but eternal death, Described in the Bible as hell. You see, that is why Jesus goes straight to the issue of sin at this point. He's revealing the greatest need of all of us, including the man at his feet. And he is showing us his authority to fix it by forgiving it. But notice when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, not everyone is Happy with those words, in fact, some take very big issue with them. Verse six says, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, "Why does this fellow talk like that who can he 's blaspheming? Who can forgive sins but God alone? See the teachers of the law were part of the influential and powerful religious class of jesus' day. Uh, they advocated for the strict obedience to the Old Testament law, including a series of other various laws that they developed to help with one's observance. They were considered by many in their day as the good religious rule keepers. Now, on the one hand, these teachers of the law are actually correct in what they say, in their theology. They were right that only God can forgive sins. That's made clear throughout the Old Testament and the New And it was also Israel's great future hope that they longed for. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of a day when God would forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Their theology is right, but their logic is wrong. They were wrong to assume that Jesus is blaspheming. That is wrongly claiming to be God by claiming to do only that which God can do. You see, actually, Jesus had already been working in the power of God to heal the sick, cast out demons. You would have seen that last week. Therefore, actually, even before he heals this guy, there was every reason to believe that he was also working as God in God's power to forgive sins here. But they're not convinced, and Jesus knows it, being God, and he calls it out. You see that in verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. You see, the point Jesus is making here, uh, just saying the words, your sins are forgiven, can in some sense perhaps be viewed as an easy thing, because it's kind of hard to verify. Saying, get up, to a paralyzed man kind of appears harder because that can be immediately verified but Jesus wants his critics to know that for him forgiving sin is not just something that he can say but actually do which is why he does a miracle in the power of God to show his authority to forgive sins in the same power of God Verse 10, I want you to, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, which was an Old Testament title Jesus often used for himself, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this Uh, Jesus' healing of this man was a great act of kindness. It was actually what the four friends on the roof hoped would happen. But we must not miss the point of this healing. It was a vindication, a proving right of Jesus' power to fix the bigger problem in all of us, the problem of sin. So before we move on to look at the next uh, part of this passage, there are just two questions I think we need to wrestle with first. Uh, Do I know my greatest need? And do I know Jesus is able to meet it? So first, we think about that question. Do I know my greatest need? Uh, If I had asked you, as you came into the doors to church tonight, to finish this sentence, what would you say? What I really need from Jesus, more than anything, is blank. A good job. Uh, Enough money for a house deposit. A romantic partner, physical healing. Now, don't get me wrong, all those things are actually very good things to desire. But if we believe that any of those things truly are our greatest, deepest need, uh, we, it will be easy for us to reach the wrong conclusion that Jesus is shortchanging us in life. When we don't get the spouse we want, or the healing we long for, or the job we desire, it will be easy to become disappointed and distant from Jesus it will be easy to believe that Jesus really has failed to help us at the deepest level. But if we grasp the truth that Jesus is teaching in this passage, that our greatest need in life is for the forgiveness of our sins, we'll actually reach the right conclusion about him. We'll grow in our faith in him, in our thankfulness, in our contentment, for we will know that all the losses of this life do not compare to the gain of having our sins forgiven, our relationship with God restored, our eternal life guaranteed, and the sure promise that one day in the new heavens and the new earth that all our sufferings, all our losses, all our disappointments will be overturned. See, this passage reminds us that our biggest need is for forgiveness of sins. But most significantly, it tells us that Jesus is the one who can meet that need. He's able to forgive our sins and wash away the stain of guilt before a holy God. And I suspect that comes as good news to some of you here who continue to feel perhaps the stain of your sin, who continue to feel the, the kind of pain of all your wrong decisions, bad choices, foolish mistakes, avoidance of God. Jesus has the power to take that burden and that guilt away. And he does that by actually taking upon himself the debt of death that your sin deserves. Uh, Jesus went on uh, from this point in his life to die on a cross so that you through faith in him could be forgiven and made right in God's eyes. That's how the forgiveness comes. And just as Jesus raised the paralyzed man to vindicate his power to forgive, God further vindicated Jesus' words by actually raising Jesus from the dead, proving that his death really was sufficient to forgive sins and that we too will have resurrection life if we trust him. Do you know that Jesus has the power to meet your greatest need? Your religious rituals or practices won't do it. Nor will any futile attempt to turn over a new leaf or become a better person. As nice as that sounds, forgiveness of sins comes only through Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross on your behalf. Only he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what he says. But second, Jesus is willing to welcome sinners. Uh, we've seen that Jesus is able to forgive sin. Now in this next session, this final section, Jesus shows us that he doesn't just reserve that power for the respectable sinners that we might think exist. In this next section, Jesus shows us that he is willing to welcome any sinner, even those despised by our world. See, look with me at verse 13. Once again, Jesus went beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Our tax collectors, as some of you will know, were a despised despised group of people in Jesus' day. They were often Jewish people that the Roman occupiers had employed to collect taxes uh, from their fellow Jews. Uh, It was not uncommon for a tax collector to pocket some extra uh, money for themselves and grow wealthy off the back of uh, their neighbors. They were viewed as traitors, scumbags, and that's what makes Jesus' words and actions here so shocking for his original audience. See, he goes out of his way to speak to one of these supposed scumbags, You see that in verse 13. It's not that Levi goes to Jesus, but actually Jesus reaches out to Levi. See, Jesus isn't hiding the ball with regards to his intentions here. He wants people to know that he has come to welcome in and bring forgiveness to the likes of Levi, a despised tax collector. And notice that Jesus' actions only kind of ramp up from this point. You see it there in verse 15 when he goes to have dinner at Levi's house. It's not just Jesus and one tax collector now, it's Jesus and many. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Sinners was a kind of catch-all term to categorize a particular group of people who were considered kind of morally compromised uh, by the religious class, that Jesus goes to eat with such people was actually a big deal. Now, I remember my dad telling me that when he was a boy growing up in our little town that we grew up in, uh, the sort of the people in his church were keen to, so keen to distance themselves from our local pub uh, that they would avoid even walking past the front door, just in case another person from church saw them and mistakenly thought they'd been in the pub. See, the pub was viewed by most in the church at that point in time as a kind of ungodly place to be and therefore to associate in. To walk into the pub, even just for a lemon squash and a counter meal, that would have been to invite religious scandal. But notice how Jesus in his day has no issue walking right into the face of religious scandal. He happily walks straight into Levi's house and sits down to eat with what the religious class of his day would have considered the riffraff of society. And it does cause a scandal, doesn't it? Look at verse 16. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? I mean, isn't Jesus supposed to be a godly teacher? Doesn't he claim to be working on uh, God's authority? What's he doing rubbing shoulders with sinners? But notice Jesus doesn't backtrack at this point because of this scandal. He doesn't suddenly say, all right, you've got a bit of a point. The optics of this are not very good. Maybe I'll just tone it down a little bit. No, instead he goes straight into teaching mode again. And he uses his actions to make a crucial point about his mission in our world. Verse 17, uh, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the teachers of the law had assumed that God would reward their outward obedience to the law jesus is saying that's not my mission he has not come to reward people because no one not even the teachers of the law with all their outward rule keeping are without sin and are worthy of reward you see the tragedy of the teachers of the law was though they thought they were healthy spiritually speaking they were actually sick with sin just like everyone else in fact it will be this same class of religious men who end up demanding the unjust murder of Jesus on the cross. Jesus' mission is not to reward, but to save. And we need to hear this, because I think this is often confused by many in our society and pop culture, and perhaps even in the church. Uh, I one of the things uh, that I think about on this issue um, one of the songs is a song by Pearl Jam called Last Kissed I may have mentioned it before it's one of their hit songs and uh, it has this chorus in it which I think is relevant uh, they sing these words oh where oh where can my baby be the Lord took her away from me she's gone to heaven so I got to be good so I can see my baby when I leave this world see The teachers of the law could have actually written lyrics similar to those. I've got to be good to get to heaven, to earn God's favor, to be welcome into his kingdom. But Jesus is clear in this passage that Christianity is not about God rewarding good people, but Jesus saving bad people, or to use the biblical term, sinful people, which we all are. Jesus has not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Have you ever had that moment um, where you need to find a new GP in your local area, and you hear about a really good one, but then you find out she's not taking new patients? It's frustrating trying to reach out to a good and reliable doctor, only to be turned away. Uh, I think it's wonderful that it's not like that with Jesus. He is God's good and reliable doctor who actually reaches out to us. Like Levi, he calls us to follow him. He's willing to fix our greatest problem of sin and will never turn us away if we come to him. So have you done that yet? Is Jesus your doctor? Now, maybe you're someone who feels a little like some of the tax collectors of Jesus' day that he met with. You know you're spiritually sick and need help. Maybe you're burdened by the grief of bad life decisions, the harmful treatment of others, a whole range of things that you know God won't ignore. Jesus the doctor calls you to follow him. To put your life in his hands, to trust in his death for your sin, to find healing and forgiveness and to live for him as your risen saviour. But maybe you're someone who, like the teachers of the law, actually doesn't think you're that spiritually sick. Now, Let me plead with you not to be like the teachers of the law as we see them described throughout the Gospels, who ignore what Jesus says about their need for him. You see, you wouldn't brush off a trusted doctor who says you need immediate surgery to remove a cancerous tumour simply because you felt pretty good. Jesus is giving you the hard diagnosis of sin because he loves you and does not want to see you come to grief at that last day of judgment before God, where your every careless word, every thoughtless deed, every defiance of God's way will be brought to account. You too are being called by Jesus to follow him and find life and forgiveness. That's the big application, I think, from this last section. But there's one final application I want to touch on before closing. Jesus' words and actions here remind us that we live in a world of sick people who need God's doctor. Do I see the need of others? See, throughout his life, uh, Jesus described people who were far from God in ways that actually highlighted their need. Have you noticed that? In Luke 15, he describes them as lost but valuable, with three parables that highlight their lostness. In Matthew chapter 9, they're sheep without a shepherd. Here it's the sick who need a doctor. Jesus uses these descriptors because he wants us to see people in a deeper, more profound way. He wants us to see people's spiritual need. He wants us to actually have compassion and help the lost find their way to God, to show the sheep their shepherd, to invite the sick to an appointment with the doctor. In short, Jesus wants us to speak to him, speak of him, to the desperately needy community around us. Um, in this morning's interview with Paul, he actually uh, gave an off-cuff, wonderful little remark. He's gone here, so he can't get a big head. Um, but Paul said this when he was talking to Clinton. He said, uh, Jesus doesn't just bring us into his family, but into his family's business. The business of making Jesus known for the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes it's hard for us, though, I think, to see people who don't know Jesus as sick, who need a doctor. I find this. Perhaps you do too. We had dinner with some friends of ours who are not followers of Jesus a few nights ago. They're lovely people, great cooks, dedicated parents. It's hard to sometimes be in the company of people like that and instinctively say these are spiritually sick people. Maybe you feel that. And maybe that's actually part of the reason why we sometimes struggle to speak of Christ with our friends and neighbours, because we're not always that convinced they need him. But Jesus has told us tonight that he has not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He will not be looking at our friends and family who don't know him on the judgment day and agreeing that they're good and healthy people, worthy of his kingdom without Jesus. They, like us, are spiritually sick, for they live independently of God, and they have not had their greatest need for forgiveness of sins met see, we actually need to be like the Jesus we see in this passage here, full of love and compassion. We need to pray for our neighbours, inviting their children along to things like Wednesday's GSF Day and Kids Club, bit by bit helping people to see their need to call on Jesus, God's great doctor. Jesus has shown us tonight His ability to forgive sin and His willingness to welcome sinners. Uh, some of you will be aware of Joni Erickson Tada. She's a Christian writer and speaker who spent the past fifty-five who spent the past fifty-five years paralyzed uh, from the kind of neck down from a diving accident when she was seventeen years old. Uh, Joni, who was raised a Christian, says that following that accident. Uh, she found reading this particular Bible passage of the paralyzed man very difficult, wondering why Jesus was not healing her like he had healed the paralyzed man. Uh, But then she goes on to say it was only when she actually started to reflect more deeply on what Jesus was teaching through that miracle and throughout the gospel, his focus on forgiveness that her mindset began to change. She says this, don't have the quote, my sister would get me up, plop a Bible on a music stand, park, and park my wheelchair in front of it. With a mouth stick, I would flip this way and that, trying to make sense of it all. I learned that the core of Christ's plan is to rescue us from sin. Our physical aches and pains and broken relationships aren't His ultimate focus. He cares deeply about those things, but they're symptoms of the chief problem in this fallen world. I collapsed in tears when I began to glimpse how heinous my sin was. Physical healing paled in comparison to the unthinkable abuse my transgressions heaped on my Lord. You see, why has Joni, someone who has quadriplegia, spent the past 55 years or so, rejoicing in Jesus and making it her goal to share him with others. Well, it's because she knows, I think, deeply the truth of tonight's passage, that Jesus is both able and willing to meet her core need of forgiveness of sins and that he's done that. May God grow our confidence in that too as we commit to trusting him. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus has both the power to forgive sin and the willingness to call and to associate with sinners. Thank you for his atoning death that deals with our sin problem once and for all. Help us to put our trust in him if we haven't already. Help us when we feel the pain of earthly desires that are not yet fulfilled. Remind us that Jesus has given us what we most need and that now as forgiven people we look forward to that glorious day when Jesus will bring us into his dwelling in which all our sufferings, losses and disappointments will be no more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.